The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Um, hey, Connie. I heard. <laughs> I see friendly faces over here. Okay. Um, well, good morning. Uh, I wanted to take a second to introduce myself since I found out last night that so many of y'all have never been here before, and that's awesome. We're so glad to have you. Uh, my name is Sarah Conti. Um, I started working at Snowbird back in 2004, and I met my husband here, and we got married, and um, we have stayed here. My husband is Rob Conti. He's currently the program director uh, here at Snowbird. So this is, oh, there you go. That's Rob. And then we have three kids. Um, We have Molly. She's our oldest, and she's my, like, artsy, fashion, all that kind of stuff. She loves loves pretty things. Um, And then this is Marissa. She's our middle child, and she's my spunky athletic girl. And then we have Walker. That's my youngest, and he's awesome. He's just, he's like the class clown for our family. He just likes to make everybody laugh. And so yeah, that's our family. And um, I'm really excited about getting to share with you all this morning. So yesterday, Little, when she was introducing the soils and this idea of gardening, she mentioned how she loves to garden and like this is something that she enjoys and is good at. And that is not true for me. So I want to tell you guys a little story. Um, We moved into our house about seven years ago now, and I was so excited because we uh, moved in, and there's all these azalea bushes, like, along the creek, and they're just gorgeous, and we had hydrangea, and hosta, and rhododendron, and it was really beautiful, and I was so excited because also all of those things are things that come back every year on their own and so that is the only kind of gardening that I even attempt is if it's going to come back again but um, it turns out that it's not just like it'll come back on its own and you don't have to do anything ever again it's not like that so I'm going to show you guys some pictures of now what things look like right now so I've got this azalea bush coming maybe that uh you can see there's like an entire other plant growing out of the middle of it that I don't know that's just what's happening and then my other azalea bushes I don't know what this is maybe somebody that's good at gardening can tell me but it's getting this like white fungus stuff on it and the branches are turning dark brown and they seem to be dying and I don't know why little help me out and then um Okay, this is my hydrangea that uh, was sprouting new green leaves a few weeks ago, and then one day I came out, and it looked like this. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it got too cold. I have no idea. Okay, finally, this is (laughs) where the rhododendron was, and uh, that one got really, like, weird, and so I pulled it out of the ground and thought I would plant a new garden, and so... What I did is I was just like, hey, let's plant a garden. So me and the kids ran to Lowe's, and we just grabbed stuff we thought was pretty and threw it in the ground. And um, that was also the year we got a new puppy. And that garden lasted about three days. And then I thought, we're not going to do that again until the puppy's bigger. But that was five years ago. And now we have this weed garden, and it really does come back every year, and you don't have to do anything. (laughs) And then 
This last thing is my one thing is hosta because they are impossible to kill apparently because they have survived my lack of gardening skills. So now my new methodology is I just keep splitting the hosta and moving them places because they live. Okay, but I'm not just telling you that because of, you know, because I wanted to tell you how bad I am at gardening. Um, but I wanted to uh, share that really like my lack of success in gardening isn't like some big mystery to me. It's not like, I just don't know. Like, I don't know what's happening. It's not like that because I know exactly why I'm failing and it's because I haven't done the work, right? I haven't tilled and prepared the soil or researched like what kind of soil we have or if I need to add some kind of fertilizer to the soil. And I don't know my plants or my soil well enough to know what it needs to thrive. And so um, I'm not checking, are they getting too much, too little water? Is it going to be too cold tonight? Like none of these things, I, I haven't cultivated a garden. Basically what I've tried to do is every now and then on impulse, I try to decorate my dirt with pretty things. And that's not the same thing as cultivating a garden. So decoration is quick and superficial and it, it doesn't last, it can't last. But cultivation is a process that's slow and steady and deeply rooted and it's enduring. And so in Galatians 5, we're going to be back in that same passage this morning that Jennifer was in last night. So in Galatians 5, um, Paul describes the attributes of Christ that should be visible in the life of Christians as fruit of the Spirit. It's a product of Christ in us. And so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, these things are evidence of a union with Christ. That they are evidence that someone is alive in Christ, that someone is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So when we see this list of words, it's not a to-do list or some path to self-improvement to be our best self as much as it is like a gauge or a barometer um, that we can assess our lives by because if we claim to know Jesus if we claim that we're united with Jesus then we need to look at our lives for these things and if we look and we find barrenness then uh, that's, that's a pretty urgent concern for us. Um, but it's imperative that we don't try to remedy that situation by just decorating our life with the appearance of these like pretty virtues because that kind of counterfeit fruit has no life in it and it's not sustainable. It will not last. So the only true path to this lasting, genuine fruit of the Spirit is a slow cultivation from the seed to the fruit, not by our power, but by the Holy Spirit. So in that analogy, we're not the gardener. We're not the one doing that work. So for us, what cultivation looks like is submitting to that turning over of soil in those hard places. It's submitting to the digging out of those rocks of unbelief. And the beautiful thing is that this happens at the hand of a gardener that does know us intimately and perfectly and understands when we need like this tender 
care and training and when we need a sharper cutting back and pruning. So he knows us so well and can cultivate that in us in a lasting and sustaining way. So let's look at, let's turn to Galatians 5, starting in verse um, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So last night Jennifer did an awesome job um, just giving the big picture of this whole passage and giving us the context of what was happening in Galatians and what this battle is between the flesh and the spirit. Um, So today we're going to going to zoom in and focus on the fruit of the Spirit specifically, but first I want to briefly look at the works of the flesh, just to kind of gather this main idea about them. So when we read that list, what we can see is there's like almost these little categories in there. So if you look at these, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, what these are are basically examples of taking good gifts that God has given and abusing them in selfish and destructive ways. So remember, Jennifer was like, this is not an exhaustive list, but you can see how that tendency could happen in other areas, to take good things God's given us and use them selfishly or destructively. Um, Then you have sorcery and idolatry, which are basically attempts to use and manipulate God or gods um, in self-serving ways. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, that whole list about conflicts, the root is selfishness and arrogance in relationships, right, to other people, and, and also maybe a destructive, selfish response when we don't get our own way, when we don't get what we want, this is how we respond. Envy and jealousy are really just discontentment with what God has given us in a selfish perspective that Um, keeps us from being able to be happy for good in other people's lives, right? So when you boil all those things down, even those categories, like the words that you keep hearing are like selfish, selfishness, self-absorbed, like all of these have to do with self. So all of the works of the flesh are rooted in selfishness and pleasing yourself, right? Or how you respond if you can't please yourself, you know? So now... The source of those is self, and the chief end of those things is self. Now contrast that with the fruit of the Spirit, right? The source of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, like Jennifer pointed out, this is the Spirit of Christ. So the source of the fruit of the Spirit is Jesus, and it's characterized by a selfless love. And the chief end of that fruit is to glorify God and to benefit other people. 
And so we've got the works of the flesh that come out of like selfish lusts contrasted with the fruit of the spirit, which come out of selfless love. Um, and, and also, like Jennifer pointed out, this is singular when it says the fruit is. Um, and so what we're seeing is that this is the reflection or this is the product of Christ living in us. And these are just like nine facets of one fruit of Christ-likeness in us. Um, in Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is Christ in us, and it's made visible um, through the fruit in our life. So let's start at the top of the list with love. Um, the word here for love is agape, and it's... Um, it's not like a lot of what the world would tell us love is, okay? First John tells us that God is love. So this comes from the very nature of God. And what kind of love do we find in God? We see um, a divine love that's not based on merit, not based on physical like appearance or attractiveness, not based on like emotional fondness. That's not the kind of love that this is. This is like an intentional decision to extend love in a self-sacrificing way for the good of the recipient. Uh, scripture tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. First John tells us by this we know what love is, right? If we wanna know what love is, this is how we know that he laid down his life for us and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Um, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So this is a, um, a decisive giving of oneself for the good of the recipient, good that's not earned or deserved. And the beautiful thing is that this kind of love begets more love. We can love like this because Christ first loved us. So what does that look like? This is great. So a lot of times when you're like searching through scripture to find out like, what does this word mean? How is it used here? And you're kind of piecing together context and trying to come to a definition. But then every now and then you're like, what does love mean? And you come to some verses that say, love is, and you don't even have to piece it together. So here we go. First Corinthians 13 tells us love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is a beautiful description of love. And because God is love, this is also a beautiful description of Christ. All of these things are perfectly embodied in him. Um, and it gives us a great idea of what our love is to look like towards other people. And we have to guard against counterfeit love. Okay, these counterfeit fruits that's like we put them on, but they're not genuine. Um, 
we have to check ourselves and make sure that the love that we are showing people is not self-serving or it's not just um, founded on someone else's lovability, right? Or it's not one where you just take and take and take and you don't give. And um, it's not one where you give up if you don't see the result that you desire because that's not the way that Christ loves us. So we can labor in this, um, this evaluation and kind of like think through something that is challenging for me sometimes is I like as I'm learning something in scripture, like I apply it to a point of generalities where I'm like, yes, I need to do that. But I fail to carry it all the way out to like specifics. And so I would challenge you to think through like the relationships in your life with your kids or your spouse or your coworkers, roommates, siblings, whatever, like look at those relationships and think, are they characterized by this? Like this kind of love, this first Corinthians love, like is, um, your relationship with your kids characterized by patient kindness or irritability, right? Like, is your relationship with your spouse one that's such that you don't insist your, on your own way? Are there um, people that you extend this kind of love to that offer you nothing in return? Um, are you prone to relish in gossip? Because isn't that rejoicing and wrongdoing like that's not that's not loving that's not this agape love so we need to check those kind of things and ask ourselves like zoomed in on specific relationships how am I living this out um, so love comes first on the list and I don't think that's by accident it seems like this is preeminent this is kind of the thing that harmonizes and binds these all together and maybe even kind of where all of them flow from as you, like we heard kindness and patience listed in that definition of love um, so it binds all these together in perfect harmony and we're going to move on to joy so joy is a delight in god right it's established hope in his promises in his in future victory and so we can look again to Jesus because Jesus was joyful. He was joyful. Um, Hebrews 1.9 tells us that he was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. That means he was more joyful than anybody else has ever been. And um, we know that Hebrews also tells us that he endured the suffering of the cross for the joy set before him. He had a joy and a hope, a sure hope, of the future victory that was coming. And um, not only that, but he gives that joy to us. In John 15, um, talking about abiding in his love, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus was joyful and we need to look at what, what did he delight in? Like if there's joy and delight what was it that he was delighting in? He delighted in the Father. He delighted in obedience to the Father. And he rejoiced at the salvation of the lost. You know, in the, when he tells the parable of the lost sheep, and he says, like, which one of you, if one of your street, sheep was lost, would not leave the other nine and go out to rescue the one that was lost? And he says that the shepherd that does that joyfully 
puts the sheep on his shoulder, returns and calls his neighbors to come and rejoice with him that what was lost was now found. So he rejoices in our salvation. And so we should rejoice in our salvation and we should rejoice in the salvation of others. Um, one, a couple points about joy. Uh, we said Jesus is exceedingly joyful, but we also know that scripture refers to him as a man of sorrows, much acquainted with grief. And so joy and sorrow can coexist. And this sometimes like doesn't make sense to us because I think a lot of times we confuse joy and happiness. And so like happiness, the way that our culture uses that word is like very based on circumstances. It's based on like that positive emotion that you get from good circumstances or whatever. So that's, it's a very fleeting emotion, but joy is a lot deeper than that. It's a lot more sure because it's founded in this confident hope that we have um, that God is who he said he was in the salvation that he's given to us in the final victory. We know that we know that we're all of these sorrows and suffering that we may walk through in this life is all temporary, but that that joy is eternal that's going to last forever. And um, there's a quote, and I, I really can't remember who it's by. I read it in a commentary one time, and it kind of sums up this picture of joy for me. It says, um, in all of my pleasures, Jesus is better. In all of my sufferings, Christ is enough. And so it's this anchoring joy where when you have positive circumstances, that happiness is fine, but your joy in Christ exceeds that. And when you have sorrows and you may have tears and grief and like deep pain in this life, but that sorrow, Jesus, is still enough. It's, it's that anchoring like hope in our soul that lets us have that kind of joy. And it can be a really good barometer for our spiritual lives because... If you find yourself um, going through the motions of, like, Christianity and there's zero joy, then it's like a really big red flag that maybe you're just, like, performing religious activities and not delighting in the Lord. And then on the flip side, it's a good... Um, weapon of defense against all these desires of the flesh because when we are fully satisfied and delighting in God all of a sudden those other things seem like not that appealing so this is this is a really important fruit and as believers we should be joyful people after joy we see peace and I love this one so the Greek I don't know how to say the Greek word, but the peace comes from a Greek verb that literally means to bind together that which was separated. And five times throughout the New Testament, we see God referred to as the God of peace. And this peace with God, like this is the peace that Jesus established by his life and death and resurrection, that he took what was separated as enemies, God and man, and bound them together through his death and resurrection. He made peace between us and God. And that um, gives us a sure foundation, and it also gives us a peace of God. So we have peace with God in that 
our sins have been forgiven, that we've been united with him. And that allows us to also have a peace of God, kind of a peace of mind that dissolves anxieties and fears and gives us this calm confidence, even in crazy circumstances, we can have this kind of steadfast uh, serenity because we know that we're one with Christ. In John 14, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, do not be afraid. So it's like joy, he said, I have joy, I'm giving you my joy. I have peace, I'm giving you my peace. So we have these things you know, produced in us through the spirit of Christ. This also allows us to have peace with others. In relationship, this peace is like the opposite of that list of like, I'm sorry, division, dissension, rivalry, all those works of the flesh are brokenness where relationships are separated. And so where the works of the flesh divide people from one another, the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit unifies and binds us together. So um, in that, Little talked already a little bit about being a peacemaker, so I won't get back into that again, but yeah, we can be peacemakers, and we can point others to the source of our peace. All right, next we have patience, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Um, So this word gives the idea of enduring injustice or unpleasant circumstances without complaint or irritation. Okay, this is a tough one for a lot of us. Because, you know, even if you're restraining yourself from vocalizing your complaint, can you say that you're enduring that situation without irritation? That's, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Um, it carries the idea of restraint, of forbearing. Sometimes in scripture we see this word translated as long-suffering. Um, we can learn a lot about patience by thinking of what we know about being impatient. So if an impatient person is quick to anger and lacks self-control and they're easily provoked and they're prone to fits of anger, uh, then the patient person, what that looks like is submitting fully to the sovereign goodness of the Lord, to his perfect timing, his rule over circumstance, his perfect justice. When we look to Jesus, when we look to God, who is repeatedly described as being slow to anger and steadfast in love. And we can think about, like, how long did God forbear the sins of the world awaiting for the fullness of time when he would send Jesus? Like, that's incredible patience that he restrained um, his wrath and he patiently endured that. Then how long has Jesus been patient with us? I think about the thousands of days that I lived before God rescued me, and I think about the incredible patience of the Lord. And then, um, you know, just thinking about how even now he's so patient with our failures. He's patient in this cultivation process, this sanctifying process. He's gentle and patient with us as that as that unfolds. So um, we are to demonstrate this kind of patience 
to other people. And that is impossible in our own flesh, right? Probably all of us have tried, tried that at times in our own flesh. We're like, I just need to be patient. I need to be patient. And then like the one more thing happens and you're like, bah, and just lose your cool, you know? And so it fails. Like you can only in your own willpower be patient for so long. But that's the beautiful hope that we have is that we don't have to do this in our own strength. We need to submit to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's helpful to think about what being patient is as far as trusting in the sovereign goodness of the Lord. Because a lot of times when we're impatient, it's because we are not trusting those things, right? Um, We are in the adoption process, which can be a very long process. And there's days where I feel very impatient about this. And the Lord really convicted me of that because it was like, all right, are you saying that my timing isn't perfect, that my timing isn't good? Would you like to be the one in charge of orchestrating how this all goes and which child I'm weaving into your family? And like, do you really want to be the one to make those decisions? And I was like, no, I don't, because I, I trust his sovereign goodness way more than my own flawed perspective of how things should be and when they should happen. And so if we can focus in on that and think about the goodness and the sovereignty of the Lord, it'll help us be patient with circumstances, it'll help us be patient with other people, and um, that will really help us grow and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should not be quick to be irritated with others about the same things that God has been so patient with in us. So, kindness, kindness. So kindness is that attribute, that virtue that compels us to do good to others, to contribute to their gladness, to take care of their needs, to relieve their distresses. And, it, and it's like this idea of that um, our sharp edges have been mellowed. There's not a sharpness here. And so this is different. You know, I talked a little bit about some counterfeit fruits, things that might have the appearance. This is different than being nice, okay? Nice is, is being polite and pleasant and agreeable. And just like joy has more depth than happiness, kindness has way more depth than nice. Because kindness doesn't just smile at somebody in like a tough circumstance and just be like, I'll pray for you, you know, which is great. We should, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. Like, we should pray for other people, and it's a huge um, part of the Christian life is interceding for one another, but kindness goes beyond that and uh, gets, it, you get your hands dirty with kindness because you involve, it involves entering into someone else's circumstances, and it often involves sacrifices and weeping with those who weep, and sometimes boldly speaking uncomfortable truth that's wrapped in the softness of compassion. And so this is the example we have in Jesus, who the Bible tells us his kindness leads us to repentance, and Jesus says, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, that's patient, Give without expecting in return this kindness, for he, Jesus, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus demonstrates this in his life, right? He physically and spiritually did good to others, 
feeding the hungry, welcoming the sinner to the table, dignifying the Samaritan woman at the well by speaking to her. Um, he didn't excuse sin, though, right? It wasn't just niceness. He was not excusing sin. He called people to repentance because that is genuine kindness. And he, um, this kind of kindness should be produced in our lives too because we have received that kind of kindness from the Lord. So we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. And then also First John, you know, we've got the forgiveness and this side of things. And then also you see in First John, um, talking about the love of God, it says like, if, if we see, if we have the world's goods and see our brother and sister in need and close our heart to them, then the love of God is not in us. So kindness extends um, into people's circumstances and doing good onto them, which is why it's so closely tied up here with the next fruit, which is goodness. Um, goodness flows from a kind heart. It's the generous giving to others what's beneficial for them, right? This is another one where I was really glad when I was trying to search out, like, what does goodness mean? Like, is this, like, moral purity? Is this, like, like what, is, what does this mean? And then I flipped over to Micah 6, 8, and it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what has God required? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So justice is doing what's right onto other people. Kindness is acting for the good of others with tenderness. And then walking humbly, like rightly understanding who we are in relation to God, all in union with Christ. All in union with Christ. Union with Christ is primary. Maybe the most important part of those verses is those last three words, with your God. Um, because out of that union, we can do what is right according to what Jesus says is right with kindness and humility, knowing that we're only capable of that goodness because of Christ's goodness in us. All right, we are on to faithfulness. Faithfulness is a trustworthiness, a dependability. Scripture said in Revelation, it talks about Jesus being the one called faithful and true, right? Uh, in Hebrews, he's called a faithful and merciful high priest. He is 100% reliable, 100% of the time. He always keeps his promises. He doesn't forget or fail, and everything he says he will do, he will do. He binds himself to his people with perfect fidelity. Remember that piece we talked about, about how God binds together that what was just separated? Well, God's faithfulness is what gives us confidence that it will never be separated again because he's faithful. He's the one upholding that peace. So this is inherent to his unchanging nature, that God can never be anything but faithful. And it's promised in scripture, and it's been demonstrated to us by experience, both through prophecies and stories in scripture, and also if we can take time to reflect and remember and look back over the course of our own lives, we can see the faithful hand of God there. Um, so what should that faithfulness look like in the life of a believer? 
One, we should be faithful to God, right? We should be trustworthy. We should be trustworthy stewards of all that he entrusts to us, faith, time, talents, relationships, the gospel. Like, we should be trustworthy stewards of the things he's given us. And we should be faithful to other people. We should keep our word. We shouldn't make idle promises or empty threats. Like, God's people should be known as reliable, dependable people because that reflects the character of our Savior. All right, next we have gentleness, okay? Gentleness primarily carries the idea of power restrained, okay? So this is not weakness. Gentleness is not the same thing as weakness. And this is another one where um, I think it's easy for us to have counterfeit fruit where maybe some of us, like me, don't, like, avoid conflict at all costs. Like, no, I'm just going to walk over here and not be part of that. But, um, but this is not a weakness. It's not like a, a cowardice in a situation. It's having the power but, but holding back so you don't destroy or um, crush someone else, right? And so it's, it's especially connected to the idea of anger. Um, and it doesn't mean that someone never gets angry. In fact, with the complexity of the word, it seems to indicate the quality of being angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. So not angry at like personal offenses that hurt my pride, but um, a righteous anger when others are wronged. So it's not pushy. So gentleness is like the opposite of these things, right? It's not pushy like me first. It's not harsh. It's not easily provoked, not stern or uh, quick-tempered. It's gentle and lowly like Jesus. So Spurgeon says, those who are much with Christ become much like Christ. He who lays on a bed of spices will naturally find his garments smell of the same. So we see this gentleness in Jesus. He says he's gentle and lowly and to learn from him. So when we spend time with Jesus, if we are united with him, then we should become like him in this way. And we see him be gentle with the way that he handled people. Again, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the woman who anointed his feet. He didn't crush them and destroy them. He, he uplifted them and restored them. Right, So he didn't neglect their sin, but he restrained his power in a way that he could restore and not destroy. And that's what we've been called to also. Later in Galatians, uh, the next chapter, it, it's a call on us, a command on us to restore believers that are in their sin, that those who are spiritual, restore them with gentleness. So that same picture Speak truth boldly, but don't crush and destroy. Um, so, all right, that's gentleness. We're on to the last facet of this fruit, self-control. All right, this word literally means the ability to take a grip of oneself, which sounds a lot like that phrase that's like, hey, get a grip, right? But take a grip of oneself, and this refers to restraining the desires of the flesh. So when we hear self-controlled, a lot of times we get our mind focused on self 
okay, that like this is something, and the, and the world has this idea too, right, of like self-control. Self-discipline means like you're in charge of your body and you're in complete control. But if we think about the context of what's been described here, that the works of the flesh happen by our own power, our own strength, and that the fruit of the spirit is a work of the spirit in us, then that doesn't really make sense to have something in that list that's like, and this one you do on your own, right? That doesn't make sense. So what we see here is that it's more the idea that our self is controlled by the Holy Spirit in us. So we went from being controlled and enslaved to the flesh to being c completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. And that's what gives us the um, power to resist the desires of the flesh. So um, do we see self-control in Jesus? Absolutely we do, right? How about the fact that we know that he was faced with every temptation and never yielded to sin? That's self-control, right? How about when Jesus was grieved in the garden about what he was about to endure on the cross and yet still went forward in obedience saying, but not my will, but your will be done. That's submission to the Father, right? Complete control and ultimately the self-control of Jesus suffering crucifixion on the cross having all power to end that if he decided to, you know, but, but in perfect obedience, he chose to stay in, honor, in order to die for our sin and rescue us out of death and into life. So that spirit, the same spirit that allowed Jesus to do that is in us. And so the power that enabled him to resist temptation perfectly is available to us to crucify the desires of the flesh like Jennifer talked about last night, to deny our selfish lusts and to walk in selfless love. So this is our list. What do we do with this list, right? We've already said it's not this to-do list. It's not something that like self-improvement, make me my best self kind of thing. It's, it's there for other reasons. And the first one is, I think it pushes us to worship Jesus. Like if these things are a reflection of who Christ is, when we dig in and look at those, we should see Jesus better, and that should push us um, to worship and to rejoice in his redemption, rejoice in that he has given us the Holy Spirit. Um, and then the second big category is that we can use this to assess our lives. So in individual actions, we can kind of go back to that flesh-spirit contrast and like think about what's at the root of our attitudes or our reaction or our conversation. Like, is it about me? Is this a selfishly uh, motivated thing? Or is this selfless love? So when we look at how we are spending our money or using our time or how we react to something that somebody says, um, when we think about the secret thoughts and silent attitudes that travel through our mind and we measure them up with this list a lot of times that's going to drive us to repentance and over the last few weeks like diving into this i've found myself with a uh like a running repentance all day as i'm like oh man that was selfish because sometimes you even do something that starts out 
genuinely motivated in the spirit and then it's like your pride tries to like hijack that and make it for your own glory and things like that where you just start to see it that tendency for your flesh to try to like take hold of things and so I think that's good I think it's good for us to live in a place of like repentance and forgiveness and growth in the Lord Um, and that when we see those things we can put them to death right and then but in a second way I think we need to zoom out, okay, and look at the overall pattern or trends in our life because that's really important too. Um, like if you're following, if you're going to go buy um, a stock or you're following a stock in the stock market, if you just look at that one day and zoom in and you're like, oh, Apple's down 115 points, that must not be a good stock. Well, that's not really a good picture of the whole thing because you see a lot of those growth trends look like this where they go up and then they dip and then they go up and then they dip and they go up but if you zoom out you can see but like over time it's going this way and so we can look for those trends in our life and on the flip side if like um we're just doing things in our own strength and trying to put these on a lot of times it's going to be more like a deadline with occasional blip here and here right that it's just um so we need to look at the overall pattern Because if we do look and that overall pattern shows no signs of the fruit of the Spirit, then that's a really urgent problem. Um, If we find barrenness in our life, I think there's two major reasons why that could happen. One could be that we are not genuinely united with Christ, right? That if, if someone has never repented, never been rescued from their sin, never placed their faith in Jesus then they've never been moved from death to life, and dead things do not produce fruit. So if there's no fruit, that could be one major concern. The other one, I think, is not so much about a lack of union with Christ, but a lack of communion with Christ. So there may be seasons where you look at your life and you're like, ooh, that assessment is not... (laughs) good right now um, and maybe the problem is a lack of communion psalm 1 talks about the man who meditates on god's law day and night being like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season we get more fruit by getting more of jesus that's that's where that production comes from and so we need to come often and drink from the word of God and meditate on it and hide it in our heart and submit to it in unreserved obedience and we need to quiet ourselves and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we need to frequently um, find ourselves in his throne room in prayer. The third thing that kind of ties in with that trend is sometimes we have a tendency to look at these lists and as we evaluate ourselves only focus on where am I falling short where am I falling short and that's good to root out selfishness to grow in the Lord but I think it's also so important that we look for evidence of grace okay look for evidence of grace like try to reflect on things that you can see the work of Christ in your life and give praise to the Lord for the way he's grown you like Give him credit and glory. um, There's a verse in John, and now I don't know where it is in my notes, but it talks about, like, it's Jesus saying, 
This gives glory to the Father that you produce much fruit and prove yourself my disciples. And so when we look for evidence of grace, when we look at that fruit and we, we receive assurance of our own salvation and we give glory to God because there is nothing good in us. So anything that's done there is by the power of the Holy Spirit and we should give credit to the Lord for it. Um, in that book that Little was talking about, the gardeners look at the fruit of the Spirit. There's a picture given about how a thriving, in a thriving garden, the more that the plants thrive and grow, the less that the soil is visible, right? Like when you go into a beautiful garden, nobody's like, oh, wow, look at that dirt. You know, like that's not the focus. But the same thing is true in our life. Like the more that these fruits thrive and are evident, the less of ourself that's visible to others and the more of Christ. And that's the goal. That's what should be happening more and more in our life. And it has to happen if we are in union with him. There's no option for it not to. There's a Spurgeon quote that says, um, and I want to kind of end on this. Spurgeon says, Brethren, the spirit of God is not barren. If he be in you, he must and will inevitably produce his own legitimate fruit. Old leaves, if they remain upon the trees through autumn and winter, fall off in the spring. We've seen a hedge all thick with dry leaves throughout the winter, and neither frost nor wind has removed the withered foliage. But the spring has soon made a clearance. The new life dislodges the old, pushing it away as unsuitable to it. So our old corruptions are best removed by the growth of new graces. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It is as the new life buds and opens that the old worn out things from our former state are compelled to quit their hold on us. Our wisdom lies in living near to God that by the power of his Holy Spirit, all of our graces may be vigorous and may exercise a sin-expelling power over our lives. The new leaves of grace, pushing off our old selfish, selfish affections and habits of sin. So this is not a self-help list. It's the opposite, right? It's a dying to self so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. The fruit of the Spirit is the natural result of Christ in me. It's a weapon against the desires of the flesh. It's an assurance of my salvation. It's born of selfless love, and it's for the benefit of others and the glory of God. So let's pray that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would be cultivated in our lives and bring glory to Jesus and that others through that would get a taste of the goodness of the Lord and be drawn to repentance and faith in him. All right, let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.